Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. Amen. I'll get you seated in just a second, but we are starting part two of our series today. And so one more time, I want us to make these statements. I know we've already done it, but they're good, and I want them to get deep in you before we move forward. We're going to make these four statements over ourselves together. If you'll say them out loud with me, one, two, three, say, I am a compassionate giver. I have wisdom in my finances. I live a joyful and abundant life, and I am not afraid. Come on, how good is that? How good is that? And I want to read for you Matthew 6, 25 and 26. This is our core scripture. Won't have you turn there because I know you're standing. But it says, starting in verse 25, it says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Come on. If you missed last week, we are smack dab in the middle of a series we're calling Fearless Finances. So I want you to look at somebody close to you and say, I am not afraid, and then you can be seated. Last week, we kicked off our series talking about the idea that we don't have to be afraid in our finances because we know who our source is, that we know that God is our source and that because God is our source and everything is his and he owns the cattle on a thousand hill and because he sees us and he loves us and he knows us that even in a desert situation, the people of God have the ability to have all of their needs met according to to his riches in Christ Jesus. We don't have to be afraid because we know who our source is and we have trust in our source. And today we're talking about the idea that we don't have to be afraid because we have wisdom in our finances. We have wisdom in the way that we operate in the area of our finances. We have understanding in the way that we operate in the area of our finances. We don't have to be afraid or intimidated or fearful because we know what to do. And I know some of you are like, right now, are like, <laughs> I do not know what to do. I have good news for you. Today is like pen and paper day. Get out your phone, get out your notes app. This is the way we are getting practical today. I'm going to walk us through a couple of things and then Phil is going to join me up here and we are going to talk about practical applications of how we walk out wisdom in our finances. We're going to answer some of the questions that you sent in. If you have questions, there's going to be more chance to send in questions. We'll see what we can get to because today I want you to walk, leave here today feeling equipped for the days ahead and feeling like you've gained some stability and some understanding in your finances. 
So if you will, turn, to me, turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. We're going to look at another portion of that same chapter that we were just looking at, some of the verses that come just before it. Matthew 26. This is, of course, part of Jesus' teaching. Matthew just 6 and 22. Sorry. Goodness. Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 is where we're going. And this, of course, is some of the teachings of Jesus that I want to read for you here this morning. Okay, Matthew 6 and 22 says, the eye is the, wait, these won't work. Hold on. That ain't it. You know? Okay, 22. The eye is the lamp of, no. These ain't it either. Hold on. Okay. The eye is the lamp of the... You know, it matters what lens you look at something through. The lens you put on has a lot to do with what you're going to see on the other side of it. The lens you wear has a lot to do if you're looking at something clearly or something dimly. The lens you're wearing has a lot to do with if you're seeing your future with rose-colored glasses or if you're seeing it clearly and plainly. The lens that you wear has a lot to do with if you see something as far away or if you see it. It matters what lens you look at something through. And Matthew 6, 22 says that the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? These two verses seem a little bit oddly placed if you look at them. They are right smack dab in the middle of Jesus' teaching on finances. If you go and read the verses before it and you go and read the verses after it, all of it has to do with how we see money and how we see our finances and how we see the resources. And right in the middle of it, Jesus says, hey, I want to talk to you about your eye and what you're looking at and what you're seeing and what you're taking in. And the reason is because the thing that you see and the way that you see it has the ability to determine how you think about something. And the way that you think about something has the ability to turn into what what you believe about something. And what you believe about something turns into your behaviors. And your behaviors turn into your habits. And your habits turn into the future that you live in the middle of. It matters about the way that you see something. And it matters the lenses that we look through. The lenses that we see something through through, that we understand something through, that we filter something through, make all of the difference in the way that we then think about them and believe about them and behave about them and create habits about them and the future that we live in, the lenses that you have for your finances will determine everything about the future that you have in your finances. So before Phil joins me, I want to take 
quick few minutes and give you five lenses for your finances that I think create the foundation that we need to have behaviors that line up with scripture, that build habits that line up with scripture, that produce a godly future for you in the area of your finances. Then I have to go fast because I've been up here for eight minutes and I told Phil I'd be up here for 10. We're not going to get through all of them in two minutes, but we're going to go quick. Okay. The first one, lens number one for you is that it's all God's. Everything that you have is God's. Everything that you possess belongs to him. All of your money is his, and all of your resources are his, and all of your increase is his, and all of your talents are his. Everything that we have, we have because it belongs to him, and he's letting us have it for a little bit. And this is lens number one. It is the foundational lens to your life to understand that anything that comes to me ultimately belongs to God. Which is why lens number two is that I am a manager. The Bible often calls it a steward. It's a term we don't really understand as much anymore because this this practice isn't as common as it used to be, but it used to be. If you were a landowner, you would hire a steward, and the steward was responsible for making decisions about your property, for speaking on your behalf, and for going out. But ultimately, that steward did not own the land. That steward was accountable to the owner of it all. And who's the owner of it all? And what role do you have? Steward or manager, that's right. Which means that everything that I possess ultimately is God's. And so my question is not what do I want to do with this, it's God, what do you want me to do with this? It means that that car that you drive, it's God's car. So the question is, God, what do you want me to do with this car? That home that you own, it's not your home. It's God's home. So the question is, God, who are you asking me to open up these doors for? It means those finances that he gives you, they're ultimately not yours. They're his. And the question is, God, what do you want me to do with this? I was talking to a friend the other day and they had an increase come into their life and they said, I had this big kind of like pay that they didn't see coming, come in. And they said, my first question was, God, what is this for? God, why are you sending this to me? God, which way do you want me to direct this money? And I know so often we wrap ourselves in this idea that it's mine and I get to do, especially if we have a habit, we're like, well, God, I gave you your 10%. Like if you've already established a habit of tithing, you're like, God, I gave you your 10% and the other 80, that's just for me to do whatever, or the other 90, to do whatever you want me to do with this. I get to do whatever I want. And God's like, I mean, it's all still mine. The question is, is how do I want you to manage what I have put in your hand? Which is why lens number three is live by a budget. Live by a budget. Jesus gives a teaching in the book of Luke where he says, how many of you, if you were going to build a house or going to put on a project, would not sit down and first count the cost? How many of us are living day by day with our money and we have not counted the cost of the expense of our life? We have not counted the cost of the things that we're pursuing. We have not sat down. If you are not directing your money, I guarantee you that your money will direct you. There's a story in the Bible where Jesus talks to a centurion and it's about the centurion is looking for healing for someone in his household. 
But Jesus says, well, let me come to you. And the centurion responds to him and he says, I don't even need you to come. Just say the word and it'll be done because I know when I speak to my my guys, I tell one of them to go and I tell one of them to come and they do just as I tell them to do because he understood the authority and the role that he had been placed in. You have been placed in a role of authority and a role of stewardship in the area of your finances. And I wonder if you said to your money to go one way and to come another another way. Do you have the ability to direct it? Because have you taken the time to sit down and to commit to the discipline of living by a budget? We are called to be faithful stewards of the finances that God has put into our hands. Lens number four is first fruit comes first. That means that the tithe that we return into God's storehouse or the first fruit that we have chosen, if you're giving above 10%, is the first and the best of our giving. We don't put it last. We're going to talk about the budget, but when we give a budget, when we sit down and do a budget, the first thing at the top is what is coming into God's house, what we are returning to him because he says, I've given you all of this to manage and I've put all of it in your hands. And what I'm asking is that your first and your best come back to me into my house so that my people can be taken care of, so that my house can be taken care of, so that other people can be reached with the goodness and the faithfulness and the news of who Jesus is. First fruits are not what's left over. This is the situation with Cain and Abel, is that Abel brought his first and his best, and Cain brought what was left over. And God said, I've called you to bring into my house your first and your best. Fifth filter is that your heart goes where your money goes. Your heart will follow your money every time. This verse also comes from Matthew 6, where Jesus tells them, he says, um, where your money, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Tells them where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And for years, I think I understood this scripture in reverse, that if your heart moves in a direction, then your treasure will follow it. But what I've found as I've grown over the years is that if you want your heart to move in a direction, put your money in that direction. If you want your heart to grow in a friendship, send some gifts in that direction because your heart follows where your money... When I... um the first car that I bought that was like my car, not that car that somebody gave to me, which I am so grateful for and was pleased. I bought a car myself and I got it and I was paying for it and it was my payments and all it was my money was going towards this car. And my brother came home and my brother's a musician. So he has a lot of gear. I'm looking at y'all. Mm-hmm. And he came home and he took his guitar case and his amp and he just threw it up in the back of my car and like scraped along the inside of one of the doors on the way. And I was like, what do you think you're doing right now? And he was like, what? I'm just loading up my stuff. And I was like, oh, no, no, not in this car. Not like that. You're not. Because part of my heart, not all of my heart, but part of my heart was with that car because part of my money was with that car. And none of his heart was with that car because none of his money was with that car. 
And so God says, I've built in a system for you where if you want your heart to be amongst my things and you want your heart to be amongst my people and you want your heart to be amongst the plan and the will of God in your life, what I'm saying to you is put your finances in that direction because your heart has a way of following where your money goes. Later in that same chapter, he says, you cannot serve two masters for you will love the one and despise the other. It says you cannot serve God and money at the same time. You cannot serve both of these things. You need to choose, am I serving God or am I serving my finances? We cannot, we have to put our hearts in the direction of his purpose and of his calling. So we have five filters for understanding what God has called us to, that it's all his. That the second one is that I am a manager. Third, that I will live by a budget. Fourth, that first fruits go first. And fifth, that my heart goes where my money goes. And I know that's all fine and good, but it's like, but what do I do with that? What do, what, and then what do I do on Tuesday with that information? How do I begin to action that? And I've been in so many services where I'm like, yes, that sounds good. And what do I do now? And that's why Phil's getting ready to come up here and join me. And we have a series of questions and topics. We want to get into what do we do with this information and how do we begin to unpack what it means to live our lives, not just like our neighbors live our lives or like anyone else, but how do we begin to walk out living and uh, living our financial lives in a biblical way and without fear? Sound good? All right, let's get into it. Sounds great. I'm excited for this conversation. I, I was really excited yesterday, and then this morning came, and I was a little less excited. Um, and quick testimony is that I woke up this morning, and one of the first things that I did was I stubbed my toe on the edge of the bed. <laughs> no. Um, and then for like the rest of the morning, I feel like I've been arguing with our kids. And then I got to church this morning and then I was like, I don't even want to do this anymore. I just want to go crawl back into my bed. Right. I don't know if you ever feel this sometimes on a Sunday morning that you're just like not in the mood for it. And then we were in praise and worship and it seems like every single song was just like a yeah. reminder of, you know what? It's not actually about the condition that you find yourself in. It's not about the situation that you find yourself in. I kept on hearing God say, are you willing to praise me in spite of all of it? Are you wow. willing to praise, praise God with a sore toe and kids that weren't listening and messing around? Are you willing yeah, yeah. to praise God amongst all of it? And like how resilient is your praise and your worship? And I, I think that this is such an important conversation for us to be having Partially, I've just loved the questions that have been coming in yeah. and hearing what's going on inside your head and inside your homes and some of those questions that we get to be able to speak to. But as well as that, I was doing some reading just a couple of days ago on an article where uh, something like a, a few thousand Americans were polled a couple of weeks ago on what is the biggest fear that you have in life? What is the thing that keeps you up at night? And the answer, more than climate change, more than unrest and wars that are going on in foreign nations, more than anything else that you may be considering, the number one thing that people are fearful of, finances. 
inflation? How am I gonna be able to afford this year what I could afford last year? How am I gonna be able to say yes to my kids and provide for my kids and provide for my family, finances? It's the number one thing that keeps Americans up at night. And so we wanna take the opportunity to speak really practically to how we can be wise in our finances because you don't have to be fearful in your finances when you have wisdom in your finances, right? So, so good. I love that. So I wanted to kick off by asking, in our life groups this last week, uh, life groups had a conversation around this idea of, can you remember your first memory around money or around finances? Like when you were a kid, what's the first thing that you remember thinking about? And if it applies, like what do you think that that tells you about how you see money and think about money now? This is you asking me? Yeah, yeah. Also, I just want to state, we're not financial advisors. We're not giving like professional counsel today. This is pastors speaking about finances. If you have questions that are deep and complex, you should speak to a financial advisor. We have a Christian financial advisor so we can help direct our finances that line up with our ethics and values and all of those kind of things. This is the disclaimer. Please don't come back at us in two weeks' time. Well, I did what you... Okay. Okay. My first memory, so I grew up in like middle-class Sydney, Australia, and I always thought that we were just middle-class Sydney Australians, right? And then we didn't really talk about finances too much growing up, but I remember walking into the kitchen one day, I was probably like 10 or 11 years old, and I saw my mom, the milk carton was like half filled with milk, and I saw my mom at the kitchen sink filling it up with water. I was like, mom, what are you doing? And she's like, well, I'm just stretching it so that it goes a little bit further because I've got four teenage boys that I'm trying to feed in the household. She's like, I do this with the milk and I mix the cereal with different forms of cereal and I've been doing it for years and none of y'all know about it and please don't tell your brothers that I've been doing this for a while now. But Phil has since told all of his brothers, just so you know. I was like, mom, I caught you red-handed stretching this. And so then really the first conversation that I remember having with my parents, I said, mom, are we poor? Like, is this, why, why would you add water into the milk to make it stretch and to make it go further and dilute this thing down? And so we started having these conversations. My parents are some of the most frugal, financially minded, thrifty kind of people that you can imagine. And partially how they were able to provide for myself and my three brothers growing up was being able to do things like that and stretch things and being creative with finances. And so what ended up happening to me was I kind of took a lot of that and seeing what my parents did and started viewing finances as a negative thing. I was like, well, finances are not something that we should be having because my parents never talked about accumulation of wealth or being wealthy or being able to um, invest and different things like that. And so I never saw it as something that I should have for myself or desire for myself. We never talked about generosity and those kind of things growing up. And so to a degree, I grew up in my early 20s. I started viewing finances as something that I shouldn't have for myself and in, in a way, like, it's bad for me to have. Wow. The way that I got there was I started seeing these TV commercials of kids that were starving on the far side of the world, and it's only going to cost two ninety nine to be able to provide for these children. And so I would think, like, well, if that's the case, then it's wrong for me to have $2.99 in my bank account because I should be able to save lives for these children 
and, and not keeping it for myself. I started for years, I wrestled with this idea of if I have any money in my savings account, yeah. then I'm guilty of murder because I'm choosing my own bank account over Phil's not dramatic or anything. He just jumps from like, I have $10 in a savings account to like, I'm murdering people on the other side. Like, can you imagine living with this man right now? This is where he was when we were dating. And I was like, wow. Okay. That got intense. more intense than I thought. Yeah. That's where our kids get their intensity. Yeah, that's where from, our kids yeah. get their intensity. But, but for real, like I wrestled with this for years. Like it's wrong for me to have any savings because I'm not using it wisely because it's just sitting there yeah. in a bank account or whatever that may be. I just want to be truthful about that. And so, you know, then I realized as we would start dating, got married, even started having kids that you cannot live a healthy, full, abundant life and have that gospel of, um, of like diminishing mentality or that gospel of poverty that I was really yeah. bound in. Yeah. And so then over the, the last 10 years, you know, I've been wrestling with the other end of the spectrum of it, of it is a, a gospel of prosperity, right? Where you give and everything will go well for you. We don't believe that, but we also don't believe that it's wrong for you to have any assets of yourself, which yeah. is the gospel of poverty. Yeah. And so we find ourselves constantly living in this tension between those two things now. Absolutely. That's a long way of answering your first question. That's about all right. A, That's all right. It's good because, I mean, I think that, right, there are scriptures that talk about the importance of saving up. There are scriptures that talk about, there's a Proverbs in Proverbs 22, where it talks about in the wise person's house, there's oil to be found, meaning, which would be, it means they've put some back to store. And the second half of that proverb says, but not so in the way of the wicked. They've, they've gotten rid of everything, right? It's the, in Proverbs 31, it says that she's not fearful of tomorrow because she's planned for tomorrow. She has plans for the seasons that are coming. And so much of what scripture tells us is through story. And the story of Joseph, for example, is the story of someone who looked and said, wow, there's abundance right now, but there might not always be abundance. And so we need to store up some of today's abundance so that we can survive. And that that abundance really, um, and saving of that abundance is our ability to then take care of other people. Because that's what Joseph ultimately says, is God used it for my good for the saving of many. And so I think that shift in conversation while also going, and I don't want to jump ahead of us, but also going, but our ultimate pursuit is not this pursuit of financial increase and financial wealth only. God wants you to have things, but those things having you and those things becoming your full focus are two different things entirely. And so there's a scripture in Ecclesiastes that says um, a wise person knows how to hold on to two things without letting go of the other. I'm paraphrasing it, but that's the idea, right? And I think this is the tension that we find in so many truths of scripture is that we need to hold on to these two things at the same time that, yes, if I have a lot, then God has given some of that to me to send to someone else who needs to be taken care of, which is what you're saying your kind of young teenage, young adult thoughts were. At the same time, God wants me to have things and wants me to excel and wants me to multiply the things that he has given me, which is kind of on the other side. And our, our tension then is how do we hold on to these two truths at the same time without being pulled fully one way or fully the other way, which I think is where so many people find, our, find themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. So I want to talk about debt because a lot of questions came in about debt. The, <laughs> 
I love to read statistics about what's going on in the nation and other nations. And I think that we just passed, as a nation, as the United States, just passed a trillion dollars in credit card debt. We, as a nation, are more in debt than we have ever been before. And in so many ways, we have just become okay with debt. We no longer ask the question, how much does this cost? We ask the question, how much does this cost per month? It's that shift in our question. And so we're not looking at the total value of something. We're looking at, can I afford this monthly payment for me to be able to access this thing now? So I want to talk about debt. And and first and foremost, is debt sinful? Is it wrong in God's eyes for us to go into debt? That's a question for you. That's a really good question. I think, so my thoughts on that are that scripture never um, fully condemns debt into right like it's not a sinful thing in the way that like it's like yo if you murder your neighbor that's sin it doesn't say yo but yeah 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 but meredith's version it might i think that's what they meant when they were writing it you know that's very clearly that is sin when it talks about debt it's not quite that clear on it but what scripture does for us is again, it gives us pictures of things and says, hey, this might not go well for you if you move in this direction. If you live a life that ties your financial situation and your life, right? So Proverbs says that the one who has debt, the one who takes debt, receives debt, becomes slave to the person who is giving them the debt, right? Okay, so anyone who has had a debt knows what it's like to be tied to that debt. It determines what you can do and what you can't do. It determines where you can go and where you can't go. If we are supposed to be healthy stewards of the money that God sent us, gave us, and say, I'm going to send some of it here and I'm going to call some of it here, we can't do that if a portion of it is tied up in debt because that debt is going to tell us where that money's going and where that money's coming. That debt is going to tell us where we're allowed to move and where we're not allowed to move. And our heart and our conviction has always been, God, we want to be able to move when you tell us to move. We want to be able to give when you tell us to give. We want to be able to invest when you tell us to invest. We want to be able to help somebody else when you tell us to help somebody else. And that doesn't happen. And the picture that I I think of when I see it is if you remember the story of Jacob and of Laban, Jacob goes and he's essentially in debt to Laban because he says, I'm going to work for you for payment for, it's for a bride, which, you know, we don't buy people, right? We know that now, but it's the picture in the scripture of, I'm going to work for you and for my bride price for your daughter, I'm going to work for the next seven years. And what we see over the story of Jacob and of Laban is that there is continual conflict between the two of them, that their relation, they don't have this happy father-son-in-law relationship because they have a lot of conflict and a lot of animosity in their relationship to the point where Jacob ends up fleeing basically without telling Laban that he's leaving with everything after his debts are paid because their relationship is so hostile. So I think the picture that we get is that this is not a good idea for us. It's not a healthy positive move for your life. Things are not going to go well for you if you shackle yourself in a lot of debt. What would you say? I would say that part of our story has been in debt, right? When we first got married, I moving from Australia, I was unable to work. I had to wait for immigration to be processed. And so for almost an entire year, mm-hmm. we were living on one income, our first year of marriage. 
and we bought a home during that time. We had a mortgage like many people do during that time. And so we were able to make our payments, our mortgage based on one income. Later that year, when I was finally able to work, we essentially took my income from my salary and then put that towards extra payments on our mortgage to be able to pay off what was going to be a 30-year mortgage. We paid it off in seven years. And so we were able to rapidly- Just like Jacob, look at us. Seven years. <laughs> we were able to get ourselves out of debt because we felt like that was the best decision for us at the time was to rapidly pay that down and to get ourselves yeah. out of debt. We have since moved. We got another mortgage for the home that we have right now. And we don't feel as motivated to pay the mortgage down as quickly as we did prior to because we moved in 2020 and we were able to lock in an incredibly low interest rate. And so that means that we can put our finances elsewhere and we feel comfortable with holding the mortgage rate that we have right now. That's a decision that we make. This is what I'm saying. This is the disclosure of this is our personal decision that I'm just wanting to put out there. You may feel differently for your family and for yourself, and that's perfectly fine. This is a decision that we've come to is putting our finances elsewhere rather than this time paying off our mortgage as quickly as possible. Why do you think the national debt level is so high though? I mean, that's a lot of credit card debt. And we're not even talking about student loan debt and you know, a car debt and home debt. Like, what, Why do you think that number is so high across the nation? Yeah, I, I certainly think that there is this idea of I need to be able, it's the comparison. It's mm. you, it's you're looking at what the neighbors have. It's yeah. you looking at what the person across the street has. I need to be able to keep up with them and the car that they have and the home that they have and, and the, the outward presentation, like I have my finances all the way together, even if internally I know I only have a dollar and 84 cents to my bank account, wow. I can't let people know about that. And so I'm going to put everything on the credit card. I might be able, I might look like I'm wealthy, but actually I'm $50,000 $50, in credit card debt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the desire to look like I have everything together. Yeah. I think one of the most important things that we learned or that I learned maybe when we were going, okay, we're going to focus hard on getting this mortgage paid off is the ability to, um, I think the discipline to stick to the budget, which I think we'll talk about in a minute, yeah. but as well, the discipline to go, you know what? I don't really need all of the things that I want. And I'm able to make some, and I'm able to wait longer for some things and I'm able to put some things off. And I think we've lost that you know, I'm not going to say everybody. Obviously, some people know how to, but as a general statement about our society, we've lost the ability to go, I'm just going to put that down the line. And, I'm, and I think especially to our kids, and I think we do our kids a disservice when we don't tell our kids, hey, we don't, we're not going to spend money on that right now. Right. We're going to put that down. And I think there's this, right, like I know what it is. You want to give your kids everything and you want your kids to be in everything that everyone else's kids are in and to have everything that everybody these neighbors' kids have. And so we just keep saying yes because our neighbors did this, so we're going to do it too. And his buddy at school has it, so we're going to sign them up too. And now we're signed up for everything and we're involved in everything and we're paying for everything that we don't really have money to pay for. And I think we're teaching our kids in a new way that they never feel, oh, you know what? We have to make some decisions about this because we haven't taught ourselves. We have to make some decisions about where our money's going and where our money's not going and commit to that in a disciplined way. Yeah. yeah Dave Ramsey has this incredible line that says, um, we buy things that we don't need with money that we don't have to impress people that we don't like. <laughs> 
That's and, the truth. And I, I think that like that so perfectly and succinctly wraps up what we're talking about, that we so often are trying to impress people with money that we don't even have. And so we're borrowing from this to be able to do this. It's one of the reasons, so I, so I think in, in summary about debt, it's generally speaking not a good idea to go into debt. I think on occasion there can be cases where it can be a, a, a wise thing for you to do. However, generally speaking, to be able to buy the everyday items that we may want or, or that we may need, not a good idea to go into debt. It's one of the reasons that we're really motivated to see people being free from debt. What we've realized in lots of conversations is that A, people are just really comfortable with being in debt. People are just used to being in debt. We saw our parents being in debt, therefore we think that this is just the way to live. We see everybody around us being comfortable being in debt. However, there can be a better way to live being debt-free. It's one of the reasons that we're really excited to let you know that we have purchased the site license to Ramsey Solutions, and we're making that available to you over the next 14 months to be able to access this where you'll be able to learn about how to live debt-free, about how to get yourself debt-free, about how to live within your means, about how to budget well, all of these different kind of things. We'll give information over the coming weeks about how you'll be able to access this, but this is for you and for everybody that's connected to you. This is not just people that are in the room. We want you to be debt-free. We want everyone connected to you to be debt-free so that we can be a debt-free community so that you're not bound in captivity of what debt may look like. Absolutely. I was just looking through the questions. And for so many of you who have sent in questions this morning and over the last week, this is going to be such a valuable tool because I'm reading right questions around things that they tackle. I don't want to underestimate what the pressures are of your financial situation, right? People are writing in and they're going, hey, like I've been trying to get into tithing, but then I also have unexpected expenses that come up and I wasn't really taught how to budget or I'm trying to manage my budget or what do I do when I legitimately have like less than $5 in an account and something came up with my car? Like how do you even begin to get ahead of all of those things? And those are very real pressures, right? When it feels like I can't get in front of any of this. And that that's why we want to offer something like this, like these solutions that begin to help you walk through, that have helped millions of Americans create savings accounts, get out of debt, begin to take hold of their finances and live without that constant fear and that constant pressure of what am I going to do with this thing? Um, because, because it is a right, like my, I need to be in my home. I need to have somewhere to live. And if all of those pressures start creeping in on me and I start wondering what am I gonna do with that, this tool is gonna help you get ahead of that. Yeah. And so this is something, this tool is gonna be something that again, we'll give you access to over the coming weeks. You can take yourself through all this information. You can play around with all of that and, and create accounts, all those kind of things. And then as well as that, starting next year, we're gonna start uh, taking some life groups through that as well. So if you prefer group conversations and sharing information, those kind of things, then you'll be able to do that nobody, in a life let me, group I model. wanna say that nobody prefers a group setting and sharing information about their finances, but it will invaluably help you to have the group group environment and the accountability of showing up to a group environment. So when those open up, I really encourage you, if that's you, to jump into one of them. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about debt because a whole bunch of questions about came budgeting. in about budgeting. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. We just talked about debt. So many questions came in about budgeting. Yes. Potentially you, you know the concept of what a budget is, but you are not on a budget. You've never created a budget for yourself. Can you talk a little bit about how we came to our budget? 
Yep, absolutely. The first thing I want to say, though, is that if you don't know how to manage a budget and you've never really worked through one or you're like, I've kind of tried and I don't really know what to do, I want to break all shame and all embarrassment about that, right? Part of the reason we don't move forward in life, especially as adults, is we get to a, spe- a certain age of adulthood and we're like, I feel like I should have learned this by now. I got a message from somebody over the weekend when we were asking about, hey, questions for today, and they they were like, honestly, no one ever taught me how to do a budget and I'm an adult now and I don't know what to do. I don't even know where to start. Can we get tools for what it is to do a budget? So the most basic way that we have done our budget is that we always start out and we do our first 10% goes to God. So you start at the top and you put what comes in in a month, right? If you've got two incomes, one income, two income, this is your monthly income total. And then we subtract from that what is 10% of that. That's the first thing that comes off to the top. That's our first fruits that we bring back into the house. I don't want to underestimate what a huge thing it is and what a cultural shift it is to go, I have decided that I'm going to be a person that brings my first fruits into the house, that I have decided that I will be in debt to everybody else before I will not bring God what is owed to God and to his house. I am in an incredibly privileged position in that I was taught to tithe since I was a little kid. I'm like a fourth generation tither. Like I got birthday money and they were like, that's a cool $20. Now out of that $20, we're going to take two out of it, right? And so for me, it's an incredibly easy habit to go, yeah, that's what we do because I've never known anything different, which is why I would say to you, if you have kids, do not underestimate what you are teaching them. Now, even if you're like struggling through it and you're like, I don't even know if I have a grasp on this, you can put something on the inside of them now that they won't struggle with what you're struggling with today when you teach them what it is to bring to God his first. So I've always started out, whoo, almost fell, that we bring our first 10% first, right? And then I was always taught to always put 10% of that back into an emergency savings. So create, I create a separate savings and checking account and put at least 10% towards God and his house and put at least 10% into emergency savings that just sits there and I don't touch it unless something major comes up. And then from there, everything else that we need comes out of the remaining 80% of what's there. So this is what I'll say about that. And this is where it gets tight is that means sometimes I have to look at that additional 80% and I have to look at all of the expenses, right? So then you sit down and you write out what are all of my regular expenses? What are all of my needs, my home? And if you have debt, those payments and all of the um, utilities, you know, et cetera, your phone, all of that. Sometimes you get to the end of that, especially when we're starting out and we go, These needs are more than what's coming in. So one of two things needs to happen then. One, we need to cut out some needs, right? We need to move in with some roommates. We need to see if a buddy can move in with us. We need to see, do we really need as big of a phone plan as we think that we need? Is there a way we can cut back on our utilities? Do I actually need three different digital subscriptions? What what are things that I can cut out of this to decrease my needs, Or what is a secondary way that I can create additional income? How can I add something to what's coming in? We have, I think always, sometimes I say always when it's not always, always, but a lot of the time, 
We have had some kind of what you would call a side hustle, an additional thing that's creating income to help us increase because all of the needs go and then all of the wants go. And trust me, by the time you get to the wants, it's often slim picking down there. Especially, again, especially early on, right? You're going like, man, there's not as much wants. And the wants are the things that you want. You're like, I don't want to send my money to like, you know, the electric company. I want, I want to go to this game. Like, I want to go to this concert. I want to go do this vacation. But all of that comes secondary to our needs, to our savings, and to our giving. Yeah. I think one of the things that has been really good for us as well is not just to set the budget and forget about it for the next 12 months, but to constantly be reevaluating that. And yes. so once a quarter, we have date night every month where we sit down together. We were married on the 30th of March. And so we sit down together on the 30th of each month and celebrate love and all those kind of things. And about once a quarter, uh, we'll get together and we'll just have conversations about our finances and what do we need to be reevaluating and all of those kind of things. So it's not just setting it and then five years later coming back to it and being like, where's all this money going? When you are constantly reviewing it, it's been really helpful for us to be able to make sure that we're still living within those means. Absolutely. Sorry, I was reading a question. And I think reevaluating it as well. That to me is a baseline budget, 10, 10, 80. We have adjusted. I mean, we've, we've started giving more than 10% years ago. We've been, for years, we've been giving that. We have different savings that we do at different times. So those, those numbers don't stay the same, but I think it's an incredible starting place to go, hey, I'm going to commit to living a life. And then you have to commit to it. And then it's the discipline of getting into it. And then you want to go like, well, maybe we could just not do that savings this month and like, and then go do something else that we want to do. But really committing to, we've decided, I've decided to be a person who has control over the area of my finances. Yeah. And so there are several different applications that you can use that can help you with budgeting in particular. Some of them are going to promote certain things and, and sell ads and, and whatnot in the subscription or the, the platform that we've made available to you that you'll be getting information about over the next couple of weeks in Ramsey Solutions, there is an application that you'll be able to build a budget out. And if you've never done that before, it's really user-friendly. It's a great way to be able to learn how to make sure that you know what's coming in and that you know what's going out as well. That'll be one of the different platforms that's available. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so lots of questions came in about tithe, which we've talked about a little bit. But what else would you want to say about that that we haven't hit yet? About the tithe? Yeah. I think it's good to talk about what is the tithe. Several people ask questions just assuming yeah. like how much or what about this instance or what about that instance or this situation. But what is the tithe? Can you speak to, to that a little bit more? Obviously, you've grown up in church, so you've yeah. been hearing about it for decades. But what is the tithe, first and foremost? And where do we find it in Scripture? Yeah, the tithe is the first 10% of any of your increase, and that gets returned into the house of God. So questions always come in about like the detail of that, right? Like, okay, so is that like before I was taxed or after I was taxed? Is that like to the dollar? Or is that, do I have to bring it everywhere? week or once a month. What if or, I received a gift? What if Do I, I tithe a gift? On the gift? Or yeah. All kinds of questions come in. And this is what I'm not going to give you an answer because I think the question is flawed. 
I think the the lens on that question, if you will, is flawed in that it's missing the heart of the matter. That the heart of the matter is that everything that I have belongs to God. And if everything that I have belongs to God, and if I love him, and he said, hey, one of the ways that you demonstrate your love and our connection and our relationship is that you return 10% of this to me every time you have increase. So what is your increase? What do you consider increase in your life? And the first and the best, 10% of that comes back into the house of God. We see it all the way from the beginning of scripture, like I said, with Cain and Abel in first fruits is where we see it most. By the time we get to Abraham, we see an actual 10% being called out. By the time we get to the Levitical law, it's actually more than 10%. They have all kinds of statutes of what they're supposed to bring in, but the tithe is a specified amount that's supposed to be brought into the storehouse specifically for taking care of the house of the things of God, for those who are serving in the house of God, and for caring for the people of God, which is what your tithe is still going for today. And then somebody, no doubt, is going to ask the question of, well, isn't that Old Testament covenant, and do we have to still observe that today? To which I will once again say, the question is flawed. Do you have to observe a tithe to be saved, to receive the salvation of Jesus? Well, no, you don't. Do you have to experience all kinds of things or do all kinds of things? Do you have to come to church every weekend to be saved or to experience the salvation that was offered for you when Jesus paid our ultimate debt on the cross and offered himself in exchange for what we owed and said, no, you don't have to do those things to be saved. But if I'm in a loving, committed relationship with you, and I say to you, do I have to be home for dinner every night to be married to you still? Yes. <laughs> I need you Does to make it, the dinner. Right, right. Oh! Because I don't know how to do it. It doesn't feel very loving, right? It doesn't feel very committed. If I say, do I have to show up at date night every, every month that we do that? for us to be married still, for us to be committed still? I mean, technically no, but the erosion on the connection of our relationship is not gonna be super strong if we don't continue in some of these practices and some of these behaviors that knit us together. And it is the genius of who God is that he does things that are multifaceted. Like we said, your heart goes where your money goes. So God sets up this system, this program that says, hey, I'm going to make sure that my house is always taken care of. I'm going to make sure that my people always have access to something. I'm going to make sure that my name is always supplied so it can go forth. I'm going to make sure that the people that serve in my house always have access to funding and are always well supported. And at the same time, I'm going to create something that ensures that you do not get tied up in a love and a worship of money, but have a regular rhythm of giving that says, I'm going to bring my first 10 into his house so that I can never say that my heart is more for my money than it is for my God. And in his divine wisdom, he sets up this multifaceted system that says the first 10 and the best 10 comes back to me. That's the tie. I got excited. I didn't know I I was that that excited about it, but I am. Apparently. Yeah. 
And, and for us, our goal is never just to reach what the tithe is. Our goal is just personally always to exceed that. So for us, reaching the 10% is not the ceiling, it's, it's the floor that we always want to stay above. Yeah. It's the goal that we always want to be exceeding. And, and this is true for the church and then for other organizations that we support as well, is that we always want to be doing more this year than we were doing last year. We always want to be exceeding yeah. this year how much we were able to give last year. That's just a personal goal for us. And so it's not something that I'm always trying to cap myself at. Like, what's the least amount that I can give and still be in good standing with God? So often when we think about the tithe, we often, I think, uh, erroneously think about the tithe being like, it's my payment for my admission to church. I went to church today, so I had to pay my 10%. Mm -hmm. It's just to be able to get into the building. And so therefore, when I don't come to church, I don't have to give. Right, like it's optional because I just I didn't come today. I was on vacation, so I don't have to do that. For us, the tithe is not optional. It's yeah. the first thing that happens. That's why we set up reoccurring yeah. giving, so that when we're here, when we're not here, it's the first thing that's happening with our finances. Yeah, absolutely. So good. Um, will you talk a little bit about? You started off talking about how you grew up and your your thoughts about um, your first thoughts on finances and what you learned from your parents. And I think one of the things I love about your parents that they are such hardworking, consistent people. <laughs> the, the extra nod. And, and they're so faithful, I think, in so many things. And you've talked a lot about some of what they taught you as well as some of the things you've learned of being an adult. Yeah, so you know, we, we had a, a great upbringing where we were taught to work hard, so great work ethic, to, to make money, to save your money, to always live within your means, to never spend more than what you had coming in. These were the things and the values that we were brought up. Having since you know, entering into adulthood, I've been experiencing, there's a whole bunch of other financial conversations that we could and should be having with, with our children, with our, with our spouse and with friends and those kind of things, whether it's to do with investments or retirement and, and supplemental income and, and passive income even, being able to earn money when you are not working. The first time that I heard about this concept of passive income, I was like, what do you mean that you can make income when you're not actually actively working? That I always viewed income being connected to the hours that I was spending my time with. Like and to the, labor. Exactly, yeah. to labor. And so therefore, I am making this many dollars per hour. I always thought that salary and income had to be connected like that. But if you have rental properties or rental vehicles or... If you are investing in, in other ways, if you, uh, there's, there's so many different ways that you could, writing books and writing music, all these different things, being able to explore what passive income, so that even while you're sleeping, you're still making money, essentially is the concept of passive income. And, and when I first understood this, my mind just began to shift and understand about how it didn't have to be linked into this simplistic way. Even thinking beyond what do my finances look like for me today, look like for us today? What does that mean for our investments, for the, for the future, for our retirement, for legacy and next generations and those kind of things? We started thinking about, about a will, what does it mean to, to have a will? We didn't have a, a will. And so we started to explore what does that look like? And so actually, this is because this is an interactive service. If you have your phone with you, you are getting ready. If, and if you have downloaded the Cornerstone app, you're getting ready to receive a out. push notification right now to ask you the question, do you have a will set up? 
The concept of a will is being able to make sure that you are able to declare and send your finances, send your wealth and your assets where you want them to go. If you don't have a will set up, then what's gonna happen is after you pass away, all kinds of money, all kinds of assets of yours is gonna get tied up with lawyer fees and with dependents, not sure about who's meant to get what and who's meant to receive what, all of those kind of things. I think I just received it on my phone as well. If you do have, uh, if you do have your notifications set up and you just received that push notification inside the app, if you didn't, uh, then you can still open your app and you can hit on the top right-hand corner, you can hit the little person icon, you'll still see the question that's in there right now. And I think we're gonna put on the screen about the results that are starting to come in for our church specifically. This is anonymous, so no one's gonna know whether you answer yes or no to this question but it's gonna help us begin to understand about what the reality is for our church. Why this is important is because 65% of Americans do not have a will. There we are. 65, how do we track how we compared doing? to that? Okay. A little Hold bit higher. Number. So this is real time. This number is still moving around. 65% of Americans, the average American, 65% do not have a will. If you can't see the screen right now, then what this means for our church, we're looking at about 75% of our church do not have a will. And this tracks, like I said, this is so important because after you die, you cannot tell your finances where they are meant to go. The will ensures that you are able to do that, Okay. And like I said, you want to be able to, to tell your finances where they're going, to which child they should be going to, what percentage they should be going to, about your collection of baseball cards or Pokemon cards, who's getting all these different things and where all those different assets that you have should be going. It's so important to make sure that we're thinking not just about what do we have today, but being able to send those things even after we pass as well and making sure that they go to the right place and making sure that that conversation doesn't get tied up with legal fees because that's what often happens, right? It's another reason that I'm so glad to let you know that we have invested in a platform to help with this statistic. If we're looking at 75% of our church does not have a will set up, part of the reason that we don't set up a will is because they're, they can be really complicated, because we don't know where to start, because we don't know who to speak to, because we're just unsure. Did I do that 20 years ago? I don't know if I ever did that. Did we ever sign that document? We are investing in a platform that makes setting up a will freely available to you to be able to do that, to make sure that you're able to set your finances and know where they're going after you pass away so that, what, uh, so that the finances and the assets that you have are going to go to the right places. So you'll receive more information about that over the coming weeks. It's confidential, it doesn't come to us, it works with a third party. Again, it's free, it's really simple, it takes 15 minutes to set up, and it's a great resource to make sure that you're controlling your finances, that, that they're going where you want them to go, that no one else is making that decision for you. Yeah. It's so good. And I know that tackling, I mean, even simple things, like I was talking to someone several years ago and they were going, hey man, like my, par my partner, my spouse died. And then after they died, I wasn't even allowed access to like certain accounts or I wasn't allowed access to certain bills to get them paid because all of that has to be legally set up. And we have wisdom in our finances. We're not going to have fear because we have wisdom in our finances. So I think it's so great. I, we want to jump into some questions before we round this off. So I know you 
you've got a couple, but I've been looking at the ones coming in as well. I wanted to get to one quickly because I want to clarify it. Somebody um, wrote in, why don't we believe in prosperity? We do believe in prosperity. What I want to clarify is there are all kinds of movements that happen in the body of Christ. There are all kinds of different kind of veins or moves that happen. And often, most of the time, those come out of a fresh revelation of something that is in scripture, that something is that is legitimately part of what God is teaching us and revealing to us about himself. And then what happens is like a lot of things, our focus becomes hyper-focused on that one thing. We become part of that group and that's what we focus on. So part of what Phil was talking about earlier is there's a group of people who are like, we've taken vows of poverty and we believe that poverty is part of what God has taught. Well, there is a truth in that, that God has called us not to just store up everything for ourselves, but to take what's come to us and give that back to other people. That's the truth revelation that they caught on to. But then they hyper-focused on that, and that became also, I'm not allowed to have anything nice and enjoyable for myself. That's what's sometimes called a poverty gospel or a, a vow to unto poverty. On the other end of the extreme of the spectrum and kind of belief around those types of things, there's something that is often coined a prosperity gospel. And in the extreme of that and in the, the hyper focus of this is all I can focus on in scripture and all I see when I look through it is this idea that if I just give to God, if I just bring my tithe into God's house, or if I just sow a seed then nothing will ever go bad for me. And I will always have not just what my needs are, but often the message becomes, I will have excess of what my needs are. And that becomes the evidence for my holiness, or that becomes the evidence for God's favor and love and care on my life. What we're saying is neither of those things are completely true. The truth is that God wants to prosper you. First, he wants to prosper your soul, your inward person, as your soul in health. And from your soul being in health, your outward person will also come into health. But he also wants to know, are you making sacrifices? Are you giving unto others? Not so that it will be returned to you. Some of it will be returned to you, but the reason and the trajectory and the drive for our giving is not so that then I can have even more. The reason and the trajectory for our giving is because we are compassionate givers. We are people who see God's other children and we say, I have something that can do something about that. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, when they were messing up the communion afterwards, and he said, you guys are bringing in your own communion and it's a mess after service because some of you don't have as much as you wish you had or as much as your neighbors, and some of you have way too much. He said two things. He said, one, some of you are getting drunk on the communion after service, and that is unacceptable, and I need you to cut it out. And then he said, two, some of you are feeling bad. You're feeling bad because you don't have as much as your neighbor, and you're feeling good and showing off because you have more than a more than your neighbor. He does not condemn either of them for not having or for having. He condemns them for the way that they use it as comparison between each other in the house of God. And he said, this should not be among you. 
This is how people outside the body of Christ behave, comparing who has a lot and who has a little, and does that make me more or less holy? But when you come in here, it's not about that. It's about we are all sinners in need of a savior, and all of us had a debt that we could not pay. So he may prosper you in excess, or he may decide that this and just your basic needs is what he has planned for you. And either way, it's a picture of his love and his grace and his mercy and his kindness that has been poured out abundantly on all of us. You can't help but preach. Sorry. Okay, go. We got to get through these questions. Well, I don't, there's so many questions. I got extra sleep last night, you know? Yeah, everyone got that extra hour back. So we don't have time to get through all the questions, but what we will do is for any question that we're unable to answer or haven't answered, we'll make sure that we take time to respond specifically to that in yeah. the text platform so that, uh, that you will get your response, just not in this moment. Um, why don't you speak to the, the question about walking out, waiting on God's provision? When is that the right thing to do? And then we'll begin to wrap up this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so some people ask questions about like, you know, we're, I'm waiting, I'm trusting in God and I'm believing in God, but also I need groceries this week, right? So how long do I wait? Because rent is due at the end of the month. How long do I wait? Or what does it look like to practically wait on God? Which I think is such a, a valuable and important question because that's the reality of where we live every day. And so I would say a couple things to that. One, I would say, man, I, I know that feeling, right? My brother and I's big joke was that when we were in a season when we were renting in Australia, which is constantly in the top five most expensive cities to live in in the world, that we were often choosing between, are we going to uh, buy light bulbs or are we going to buy toilet paper? And I'm happy to announce that toilet paper always won out in that debate. And so for months, we did not have light bulbs in our apartment. Like friends would come over and we would be like, oh yeah, no, after dark, it's just like 1800s in here because we don't have lights and we don't have candles either. So, you know, yeah, we didn't have phone, like nothing, right? So I understand that that conflict of where, how am I going to decide and how am I going to wait? And so, so two things. One is I would refer back to budgeting. Do you know where your money is going? Have you set up and are you directing how much I have and do my needs fit in accordance to that? And have you really looked at what can I do to make this work and then make the adjustments as necessary. I do think we live in an increasingly isolated community and an increasingly isolated world. And the message that Jesus gave to us, it was actually in a community of interconnectedness. So are there things that you are trying to do all on your own that could be done in the context of community? I think roommates are very underrated assets in the way that they form your soul and in the way that they help your budget. For a lot of us, we somehow have rejected that idea that once I'm an adult, I no longer need someone else or I shouldn't need someone else. And I would look at things like that. Are there ways that I can be cutting back on where my expenses are going? And then the second question I would ask is, what has God put in your hand? He has put something in your hand. If what you have right now is not enough and you've done the thing of looking at what can I do and this is legitimately all of it, what else is in your hand? hand to create increase in your life. 
There's a message where Bishop Jakes famously says that we often wait on God to do something that he has given us the thing to do, that he has given us something to do with. And I think often we talk about waiting on God as such a passive activity. Like it's gonna be like the Ravens with Elijah where I'm just knocked out and he just shows up and drops off. And every so often God shows up like that, but more often than not, he shows up in the form of provision of opportunity. He shows up in the form of provision of what's in your hand. When Bishop Drakes gives the illustration, he says, we're like, God, I need a table. God, I need a table. And God's like, I don't make tables and I don't make chairs. I gave you trees. Go cut down a tree, go shave a tree and go make it into a table. What's in your hand that God's saying, I don't do that. I gave you what you needed to do that thing. And is there a way that you can create extra and create a a secondary way of creating income or a secondary way of making up the difference? Because I, I would venture to say that God is probably providing in that form more than he is, or certainly more regularly than he is in the form of a surprise check that's gonna show up before rent. Great. Yeah, and I think that there's always this intersection where we find the truth between the natural and and the supernatural. For me, part of how this has looked is that I remember several years ago, there was a 12-month period where like every single thing in our house broke. Talking about like the washer, the dryer, the the HVAC, like the, what do you call it? The HVAC units, the air conditioner, all this kind of stuff. Everything just about broke. I remember getting so mad and so frustrated about this because I would say, like, God, I, we could be doing so much more with our finances if we didn't have to invest in repairing everything or replacing everything. We could be so much more generous to your people. We could be doing so much more in the kingdom if we didn't have to be fixing everything. And he took me to that scripture in Malachi where we read about how Jesus will rebuke the devourer for our sake. And I had this realization that there is also this spiritual, supernatural side that's going on. Yes, like the appliances that we buy do have a lifespan that goes on them. But every single thing that was breaking down, that is an unnatural attack that took place in our lives. And so I stood at the door quite physically and I said, I am the door to this house and I rebuke the devourer and you have no place coming into my home any further prayed that prayer, declared that thing, and then for the next 12 months, not a thing broke in our house. Because there is this intersection that takes place between the physical and the supernatural that we're able to to live in. And I think, I wanna close with this thought around, around what are you actually chasing after? Are you chasing after um, money? and assets, and accumulation, wealth, riches. Someone said to me the other day, I just wanna be rich. I'm like, what what does that even mean? That's so subjective, I just wanna be rich. Rich for one person means something completely different for the other person. What are you chasing after? Are you chasing paper, or are you chasing after purpose? Are you chasing after, after money and wealth, or are you chasing after the presence of God? I remember when I first moved to the United States, I told everybody, I'm just moving for two years. I'm coming for this girl. We're gonna be here for two years and then we're gonna move somewhere else. That was 11 years ago. 
if you had asked me 11 years ago where I would be in a decade's time, I would not have told you in Toledo, Ohio. We are not pastors for the money. We are not pastors for the paper. We are pastors for the purpose, for the purpose that God has given us in our lives. And so I just wanna encourage you to be thinking like that. Am I chasing after paper? This is true for the potential promotions that you may have in your life, for the job opportunities that may come your way, for the ability to, to make different decisions. What are you chasing after? Are those two things in opposition to each other? Are you chasing after paper or are you chasing after presence? Because I know that I came here 11 years ago and told everybody, Two years and that's it. I came here for a girl, but we stayed here for the church. Our commitment is to see this body of believers be everything that we can possibly be and be everything that God has given us to be. And I think like it's easy to, to feel that or to say that when you're doing something like pastoring, but the point and the, and the, the focus should be that God has purpose for your life as well. God has something that He wants you to do and that He designed for you to do. And He has purpose for the increase and the finances that He's put in your hand, for the resources that He's put in your hand. However big or however small those feel and those seem to you, there's a purpose behind that. And it is so counter-cultural. It is such a different lens to go, my, my pentacle of my existence is not to always pursue what's next. It's not an automatic yes just because it means more, or it's not an automatic yes just because it looks like what my neighbors think I should have or what my family thinks that I should have. It doesn't mean it's an, I was talking to a friend like a month or so ago, and I go, man, we got this, this new offer, and it was a new contract for another year on something, and they increased all the benefits, and they increased the pay like exceedingly, and they were like, we, you know, we were looking at it, and by all cultural standards, you'd be like, well, sign up. I mean, when they were telling me about it, I was like, you sure the Lord's not in it? Because that's a good contract. But they were like, as we were praying about it, we were just like, this isn't what God has for us in this season. And so I think that thought of what am I pursuing? If I pursue the thing that God has for me, God will take care of me. If I'm in the place that God has told me to be, God will take care of me. The story of Abraham and um, Lot, right, is that Abraham and Lot go out. And then they say, hey, we need to split up. We need to go to different lands. And Lot picks the better land. You know, like we do this thing with our boys, like one cuts, one picks. And so Abraham said, look, Lot, you pick. And Lot picks what we all would pick. He picks the better land. But because Abraham was in purpose and in alignment with God, God said, I'm going to prosper you in the place that I take you to go, Abraham. As long as you're listening to me, as long as you're in step with me, and we get so out of whack when we start pursuing, I'm going to go after my own thing, and I'm going to go after what seems best in my own eye, and maybe the dollar signs will increase, but God, the word blessing in the um. In the Old Testament in Hebrew, the word blessing is translated as the ability to carry the load, the help to carry the load that you have. And in the New Testament, the word is translated really simply from the Greek as happy. 
is what God's given you. Are you blessed in it? Do you have the ability, his grace on your life to carry the load that he has for you, to be happy in the midst of it? Proverbs says that his wealth comes and it brings no sorrow with it. And my prayer for your life is that he would meet all of your needs according to Christ Jesus and that he would multiply you as you prove yourself faithful in what you've already had and that he would increase you. But more than anything, it's that his blessing would rest on your life, his ability to carry the load that he has given you. And I promise you, when we get out of step with his purpose, the ability to carry that load becomes harder and the ability to carry that load becomes more and more unsteady. And what I want for you is to see his face to trust in him and live without fear to know that you have wisdom and understanding and to live without fear and next week we're going to talk about the joy of living in generosity to trust in him and be without fear to have wisdom and to live in generosity